Good morning. Today we are going to begin a study in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a great book. It is a book with some great passages like the end of chapter 1 where it talks about the foolishness of the cross. Like chapter 13 that may be many of your favorite chapters because it's a chapter all about love. Or maybe chapter 15 that deals with the resurrection. It's a great chapter on the truths of the resurrection. But it's also a book that contains some somewhat controversial subjects. It's a book that talks more than any other about the subject of divorce. It's a book that that talks in depth about the role of women in the church. It's a book that talks about the subject of tongues. And so as I enter into studying and teaching this book, I feel a little bit like Paul says about himself in chapter 2, verse 3. He says that he was in Corinth in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. But I am confident that the God who inspired the writing of 1 Corinthians can help us understand the truths here and apply them to our lives. I told somebody the other day, if we got through Hebrews, we can get through anything. Now this morning, I'm simply going to lay the foundation for this book. I'm going to give you an introduction. I'm going to give you some necessary background. And then I'm going to give you an overview and an outline of the book. Paul came to Corinth on his second missionary journey in about 51 A.D. And Corinth was quite a mission field. It was a fascinating place. In fact, you only have to look on a map to realize that because Corinth was in a strategic location. Greece was divided into two parts, a northern and a southern part. It was shaped kind of like an hourglass. And right in the middle was an isthmus only four miles wide. And right in the middle of that isthmus was Corinth. And so all of the north-south traffic through Greece, everybody who wanted to come from Athens down to Sparta in the south, or vice versa, had to pass through the city of Corinth. And so it was a very wealthy commercial city. In fact, it was one of the great trade centers of the ancient world. And not only did north-south traffic come through Corinth, but also east-west traffic came through Corinth. Boats wanting to get from the west coast of Greece to the east coast and then go on up through the Aegean Sea had to go all around that southern portion of Greece, which was called the Peloponnesus. It was a 250-mile trip around. So what they did, in fact, down at the bottom of Greece, there's a place called uh, the Cape of Malia. And the waters are so treacherous down there that sailors in the ancient world would say that a sailor never sails around Malia until he first writes his will. So rather than go all the way around the bottom part of Greece, 250 miles by boat, what they would do is that they would come into the uh, Corinthian Gulf, they would lift the ship up, They would put it on skids or on rollers and they would roll it the four miles across the isthmus, drop it into the Saronic Gulf 
and then proceed east. In fact, in Greek, this isthmus was known as the dialkos, which means the place of dragging across. If you go there today, there's a canal built, of course, to allow ship travel in between. So Corinth was one of the great cities in the ancient Near East. In fact, in the first century, in the time of this writing, it already had a rich history. It it was a great thriving city until 146 B.C. when the Romans came in and destroyed it, annihilated it. Almost exactly a hundred years later, in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar saw this spot and realized what a strategic location it was. And so he rebuilt the city of Corinth and recolonized it with people. And so people came streaming in from all over the Near East to make their fortune in this strategic city. It was kind of like the equivalent of the internet startup companies. It's like, if we get in on the ground floor of Corinth, we're going to make a lot of money. And they did. The time that this letter was written the population of Corinth was estimated to be 500,000 people. Half a million people. Very socially diverse, very racially diverse. It was a city filled with Greeks and Romans and Jews. It was also a, a great entertainment center in the first century. There were actually four great athletic games that were held in that part of the world. One of them you would recognize, it was the Olympic Games, held in Olympia, which is southwest of Corinth in Greece. One of the others was called the Isthmian Games, because it took place on the Isthmus of Corinth every two years or every four years. Corinth was also an educational center. They were very proud of their knowledge, very proud of their wisdom. And we're going to see that Paul addresses that subject in this letter. But it was also a very morally corrupt city. It had an acropolis or a plateau in the city just like Athens did. 1,800 feet high called the Acrocorinthus. You could get up on top of that plateau and see Athens 45 miles away from the top. And on top of that plateau, on top of that acropolis, was the temple of Aphrodite. Goddess of love, or more accurately, goddess of lust. They had a thousand sacred priestesses that lived in the temple. At night, they would come down into the city of Corinth as prostitutes. And so they had combined their pagan religion with prostitution in the city of Corinth. In fact, they canned a term called to Corinthianize, which meant to behave like the Corinthians. And that became a verb meaning the lowest rung on the moral ladder. The most debauched behavior you could do was to Corinthianize. And so Corinth was this very diverse city, very religious city. They had everything from a Jewish synagogue to A pagan temple. In fact, they had multiple pagan temples. Archaeologists have discovered at least 26 pagan temples in the city. So it was a religious place, but a very relativistic place. And so the chief characteristic in Corinth was tolerance. 
Sound familiar? And into this culture, with all this wealth, and all this sexual immorality, and all this pagan religion, comes Paul to plant a church. You say, well, how did he do? Well, we have the description of his encounters there in Acts chapter 18. And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 18 to get a little background on how this church got started. Acts chapter 18 and verse 1 says that Paul left Athens and came to Corinth. Now, he didn't get a great reception in Athens. If you read about his experience there in chapter 17, he got heckled off the stage in Athens. So he comes to Corinth and he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, a couple who had been kicked out of Rome. In fact, all of the Jews had been banned from Rome. And so they had come to Corinth as well after having a negative experience. And Paul worked with them in tent making to support himself. And then on the Sabbath day, he would go to the synagogue and proclaim the gospel. And then verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia... Paul devoted himself completely to the Word, testifying that Jesus was the Christ. What kind of reception did he get? Look at verse 6. But when they resisted and blasphemed, that's not a real good reception, by the way. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He preached the gospel in the synagogue. They blasphemed him, resisted him, and so he said, I'm out of here. I'm going to the Gentiles. And where did he go? Look at verse 7. I love this. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. He says, I've had it with you Jews. I'm going to the Gentiles. And where does he go? He goes next door. And he continues to proclaim the gospel. And who gets saved? You see, Paul's heart never got real far from the Jews. Who got saved? Look at verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And then look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. Now what's that tell us? Paul was afraid. I find great encouragement in that. Sometimes we think Paul was bulletproof. Paul came into this city of Corinth, this intimidating city, and he was fearful about proclaiming the gospel here. And so God speaks to him, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. I I don't have time to preach on that. But but God, God says, I have many people in this city. Who were these people? They weren't believers yet. So God is saying, I've got people out there that are going to be saved. You just stay with the program. See, oftentimes we think, I'll take God's gospel and I'll go here and God will have to follow me. God is saying, no, if you'll go where I'm going to work, you'll find fruit in your ministry. 
So it's important to be laboring where God is calling us to be because God had people in Corinth that were going to be saved. They hadn't been saved yet, but they were already God's people because He had them. And so verse 11 tells us that Paul taught the Word there for a year and a half. And when he left, you know who came in as the preacher behind him? Chapter 27 tells us it was Apollos. Apollos was a man who was mighty in the Scriptures. So this is a church that had the Apostle Paul for a pastor for a year and a half, and then he got followed up by this Apollos, who was a man who was very intelligent and very eloquent in the Word of God. Now, let me give you the chronology. Paul plants the church in Acts chapter 18. Then he leaves. He goes to Jerusalem and then back to his home church in Antioch. And then on his third missionary journey, he comes to Ephesus and he stays in Ephesus for three years. And sometime during that process, he writes a letter to the church at Corinth. And to see that, I want you to look at chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians and verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So Paul has written a previous letter. We don't have this letter. God did not preserve it for us in His Word. We know what the theme of the letter was. Don't associate with immoral people. So Paul writes this letter to them. Then after that, he writes 1 Corinthians when he was in the city of Ephesus. And we know that because in chapter 16 in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians, he tells us he's in the city of Ephesus. And so he writes this letter to them. You say, well, why did he write 1 Corinthians? Well, Two reasons. Number one is in chapter 1 and verse 11. Notice what he says there. He says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. He hears through Chloe's people or Chloe's family that there are some issues in the church at Corinth. So he writes this letter to deal with the quarrels and the problems that are taking place in the city of Corinth. And then there's a second reason that he writes, and for that look over to the last chapter, chapter 16 and verse 17. He says, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. These three guys come from the city of Corinth. Now, in that day, they didn't have the mail service we have today. They didn't have email. So these guys come to visit Paul in Ephesus, and they bring him a letter from the church at Corinth. You say, well, Dan, it doesn't say here that they brought a letter. Well, for that, look at chapter 7 and verse 1. Chapter 7 and verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. 
So he has two sources of information. He has Chloe's people who are telling him about divisions and disorders in the church. And then he has a letter from the church at Corinth asking questions about certain difficulties that they're dealing with within their church. And so that really forms the outline for this book. Divisions, disorders, and difficulties. And I've listed that in your bulletin this morning, and I just want to walk through it with you and just kind of do a flyover and touch on these various areas so you'll get a kind of comprehensive view of this book and see where we're going in our study in the weeks or months ahead. First is divisions. Did you ever wonder why Christians don't get along? You ever wonder why there are so many denominations? You ever wonder why churches split and then split again and split again and those kind of things? Why do those things happen? Well, it's not a new thing in the church. Paul deals with it in the first four chapters of this great letter. And I want you to look at chapter 1 and verse 11. He says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, that's another word for Peter, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? When Paul left Corinth and Apollos came, these people kind of became groupies. They picked their teacher and they decided they were going to segregate themselves. They were going to isolate themselves and become groups following certain teachers. Some of them said, I'm a disciple of Paul. I've got all his tapes. The other guy goes, well, no, Apollos is the man. I've, I've got all his books. Whatever he says is the truth. And so, does that sound familiar? So, Paul addresses this issue in the church at Corinth. And he shows that there are really two causes for their division. Number one, they have a misunderstanding of the message. In chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 4. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Talking about the message, Paul says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's a pretty simple message, isn't it? What's the message? It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he tells us at the end of chapter 1 that that message is one that's foolishness to the world. They don't understand why we're talking about a crucified Messiah, a king who hung on a cross. It's foolishness to the world. In fact, he tells us at the end of chapter 1 that the people who respond to that message are the foolish and the weak and the base. And so he says, you need to understand the message. And then look at verse 4. He says, and my message... And my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? 
so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The message is simple. It's the the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the message, so you won't get hung up on the messenger. You'll understand the message. And the message is one that's so simple that you have to humble yourself to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the real problem of the divisions in the church at Corinth was their pride. In First and Second Corinthians, the verb to be arrogant is used six times and the word to boast is used 35 times. The root cause of division is pride and arrogance. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, your boasting is not good. And he says in chapter 8 and verse 1, knowledge puffs up. And he writes a whole chapter on love in chapter 13 because they were missing that element in their congregation. And so division was caused by a misunderstanding of the message, first of all, and then secondly, a misunderstanding of the messenger in chapter 3, verse 5, through the end of chapter 4. Notice chapter 3 and verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Did you get that? The one who plants, the one who waters, they're nothing. Who is something but God who causes the growth? You know, I, I did the baptism earlier and I, I, I put my socks on. I think I only had my underwear on and my socks on. I went in the bathroom, came out, realized I had walked in water. That was my socks. So my socks were all wet on the bottom. So I was upstairs, sitting on the floor of the bathroom with the hair dryer on the bottom of my socks, thinking if they could see me now. See, I don't need it for my hair. I need it for the bottom of my feet. That's the messenger. God can use any messenger. God can use a donkey if he wants to. We need to be careful that we're not elevating men to a status they don't have any right to be in. You see, when we understand that it's God who causes the growth, and Jesus is the message, and the messengers are nothing, we will quit following people, and we will unite around Jesus Christ. That's his message in chapters 1 to 4. Then secondly, he deals with disorders in chapters 5 and 6. And I see three disorders here that I've listed in your bulletin. Number one is discipline, chapter 5. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, It is actually reported 
that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. In the church at Corinth, there's a guy who's living with his father's wife. And he's saying, this guy's committing a sin that even makes the Gentiles blush. You know, they're immoral, but they're looking at you guys and going, wow, I would never go there. And how are you responding? Verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. They had this guy in their congregation living with his father's wife, and they were proud of themselves because they were so tolerant. They were saying, my, look at us. We allow this guy to be in our church, and we just love on him all the time. And what does Paul say? End of verse 2. He says, And you have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. What should have happened? He should have been put out of the church. And Paul is going to deal in this passage about it, how to have discipline within the body of Christ. I had a fellow stop by my office this week who 18 months ago pleaded guilty to sexual misconduct, who admitted to having sexual intercourse with an underage girl who was mentally ill. He served a jail sentence. He has been excommunicated by his previous church, and he came to see me to ask for advice on how to start a new church. And he's going to be the pastor. Needless to say, he asked the wrong guy. Because he did not get the kind of advice that he was expecting. But in his mind, he's done this, it's over with. He hasn't admitted anything. He hasn't apologized to the church. But he's going to go on and serve God. And I told him, there is no way that God is going to bless your life in any way, shape, or form until you go back and confess your sin and get right with those people you wronged. That's discipline. Second disorder is lawsuits. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? We live in a litigation-happy society. Guess what? Same thing was happening in Corinth. They had a problem with their brother or sister in Christ. They took them to court. Sued them. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's kind of strange. you got a, a dispute with your brother and you go before a secular judge... Don't you know that down the road one day you're going to sit on thrones and judge the world? So if you're going to do that in the future, don't you think you can resolve a little conflict within the church today? And then the third disorder is immorality in chapter 6 and verses 12 to 20. Sexual immorality is not a new problem in our society. 
There were some in the church that were still making their weekly visit to the pagan temple and the prostitutes and thinking that was okay. And so Paul writes in this passage in verse 18, flee immorality. And then in verse 19 he says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. And so he deals with the disorders. And then thirdly, he deals with the difficulties in chapter 7 through chapter 16. And I want you to notice the beginning of chapter 7 because it's very important because he kind of switches gears here in chapter 7 and he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And here he begins to deal with the issues that they have asked him specifically about. And in the Greek, this phrase now concerning is peridae. I want you to notice, it, it appears here in verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And then if you look at verse 25 of chapter 7, now concerning, same phrase. Chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning. He continues to deal with these issues they have brought up in their letter. And he's going to address them, the difficulties that they raise. And I've listed several of them. Number one is marriage and divorce in chapter 7, verses one to 24. They had questions about this subject. They had questions like, if I've become a believer and my spouse is not a believer, do I have to stay married to them? And now that I'm a believer and I'm married to an unbeliever, can I just kick her to the curb? Or, are there biblical reasons Biblical justification for divorce. Is there biblical justification for divorce and remarriage? He's going to deal with that subject in chapter 7. So if you have those questions, stick around. Secondly, the single life in verse 25 of chapter 7 through the end. The question is raised here. He says, now concerning virgins, and that's a reference to single people, How do you live as a single Christian in a sexually promiscuous society? Should you as a single person spend all your time trying to get married? Or should you be satisfied being single? Paul's going to address that subject. And he may surprise some of you because he's going to actually make the point that you can serve the Lord more effectively as a single person than you can as a married person. Then thirdly, is matters of conscience. Chapters 8 through 10. And there he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. In the, in the city of Corinth, they would take animals up to the pagan temple. They would sacrifice those animals to uh, the goddess there. Then they would take the meat back to schnooks and they would sell it in the marketplace. Now, some people just bought it and thought it was no big deal, but but certain people who came from an idolatrous background and had been involved in that temple worship prior to being saved had a conscience problem with eating this meat after it had been sacrificed to idols. We don't have that exact parallel today, but we have many things today that fall into that same kind of category. For some people, it may be the issue, you know, are you comfortable mowing your grass on Sunday? Are you comfortable 
dancing and, and, and other, are you comfortable to have a glass of wine with a meal? Are, are you comfortable to smoke a cigar on the golf course? Are those things right or wrong? Well, they are issues of conscience. You see, they may be right for me because my conscience says it's okay, and they may be wrong for you. And he's going to tell us in these chapters, chapters 8 to 10, he's going to give us some principles for how to behave in these areas. Because it doesn't just come down to whether my conscience says it's right or not. I have to be sensitive to your conscience as well. And then the fourth thing we see here is gender roles in chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. He's going to clarify that men and women are equal, and yet we have different roles within the church. And he's going to spell some of that out in this passage. And then in chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, he deals with the Lord's Supper. The church at that time would meet together uh, because Sunday was not a day off for them. They were actually off on Saturday. Uh, they would gather together on Sunday evening for a love feast. They would eat their meal together. And in the context of that meal, they would take the bread and the cup and remember the death of the Lord Jesus. And the bread was a symbol not just of the physical body of Jesus, but it was also a symbol, we're told in this book, of the spiritual body of Jesus, the church. The bread being one represents our unity. And so they were taking this symbol of unity while they were all divided up in their body and they were making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. In fact, he's going to tell us in this chapter that some people, they kind of had a potluck supper and some people would bring their part and eat it before the other people got there. Some people would actually get drunk at this meal because they were selfish and they were hoarding things for themselves. And so Paul is going to spell out the meaning and the importance of the Lord's Supper at the end of chapter 11. And then the sixth issue that they had questions about was spiritual gifts in chapters 12 to 14. And Paul has to correct their view of spiritual gifts because they were wanting to use spiritual gifts to please themselves and draw attention to themselves. And so in chapter 12, he tells us that gifts are not given to exalt one person over another. They are given for the common good. And we are all dependent upon each other with our gifts in the body of Christ. And then in chapter 14, he focuses on the two most prominent gifts in the church at Corinth. And those two gifts were prophecy and tongues. And they really desired tongues because they were flashy. They wanted to have tongues. And so Paul takes chapter 14 to show that prophecy is the more significant and useful gift. In fact, as we go through that chapter, you'll see that he so downplays tongues that he gets to the end of chapter 14 and verse 39, and he says, do not forbid to speak in tongues. I, I've bashed tongues because it's really not a significant gift, but I'm not saying that you throw it out the window. And so he's, he's weighing these two gifts, and he's saying prophecy is the one that you ought to be desiring. Prophecy meaning the gift to proclaim the Word of God. And then in the middle of those two chapters, he wants to show them an even better way 
in chapter 13. And that better way is love. When he tells us that all the gifts, faith, knowledge, prophecy, are of no avail if you don't have love. And then in chapter 15, he addresses the issue of the resurrection. Look at chapter 15 and verse 12. He says, now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some in the church at Corinth were saying there's no resurrection. They were denying the resurrection. And so Paul spends this entire chapter, a very long chapter, on the subject of the resurrection. And I love the fact that he did because we have some great detail about Not only Christ's resurrection, but our future resurrection. Do you ever wonder how our future resurrection is going to work? Do you ever wonder how God's going to put this body back together? Do you ever wonder, well, what about people who die in plane crashes and they never, you know, their bodies get... Is cremation wrong? What's that body going to be like? Am I going to get to zoom around the universe? Stay tuned. We'll deal with that in chapter 15. And then eighth, he deals with giving in chapter 16, verse 1. Again, that phrase, now concerning the collection of the saints. You know, the antidote for a selfish, prideful, quarreling church is to give. And so he lays out a plan for them to make a collection to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem so that they will become a giving community rather than a fighting community. And then finally, he deals with Apollos, etc. in verses 16, or chapter 16, verses 12 and following, where again he begins with that phrase, now concerning Apollos. And they ask some other questions about Apollos' plans and some other details, and he answers those as he closes out the book. Now when the outline for a book is divisions, disorders, and difficulties, you know that this is a church with problems. And some of you may be sitting here saying, well, how could they have that many problems? Or you may be sitting here saying, well, Why do we need to study a book about all of these problems? Well, my answer is that two millenniums later, we're still experiencing divisions and disorders and difficulties because we are living in the same kind of society. You see, when the gospel reaches into a pagan society, what kind of people do you have? You have people with problems. Let me close by showing you a passage. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you say, preach it, brother. Well, hang on a minute. Look at the next verse. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Can I have you do something this morning? I'm going to sit down. Oh, today's my birthday. I'm a little getting old. Look at that list in verses 9 and 10. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. He says, such were some of you. Would you do something for me this morning if any one of those terms describes what you were apart from Christ? Would you just stand up this morning? Look around. You're not alone. That's a powerful statement. You can be seated. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. I would rather be reaching into the secular culture and impacting people with the gospel and dealing with their problems than to be legalistic and missing it, wouldn't you? You know, it's interesting to me that Paul starts out this book in chapter 1 and verse 4, and he says, I thank God for you guys because of the grace of God in your lives. You know what's interesting? He writes to the Galatians, and he doesn't say, I thank God for you. He says, I'm fearful for you guys that you've missed it. Why? Because they were legalistic. Let's be the people who take the gospel of the grace of God into our immoral society and impact people for Jesus Christ and then have to struggle with the problems that that brings. So I'm going to ask you this morning to get ready Get your heart ready to go through one of the most practical books in the New Testament and open our hearts to God and say, speak to me in all these areas as I'm struggling. I'm going to have the praise team come back. I didn't tell them they were coming back, but they are such a flexible group (laughs) that they're going to come back. Because as I was singing that song with us earlier, and I don't even know the title of it, Why Should I Gain from His Reward? I want you to think about who you were apart from Christ. And let's sing this song together. Let's stand as we do so and just 
celebrate the grace of God together this morning. And uh, as we're singing together, I'm going to ask Rachel to come and drag her parents down here to the front as well. Uh, Let's close by singing together.